everyone. Welcome back to Ask Me Anything, our session where we address some of the questions that have come up uh, either through our conversations with companies or submitted to us or DM at some point. Uh, really excited to have any, any frequent visitors back with us and for any new guests and friends, welcome. Uh, for anyone who was here for the last session, you'll remember Izzy joined us. Uh, Izzy has actually been behind the scenes on pretty much all the content that we've been creating, whether it's the the video stuff or the podcasts or the uh, the memes and the other content. Uh, excited to have her here in front of the camera rather than just behind it. So thanks, I'm happy to be here. Fantastic. So uh, what we wanted to do is is just kick us off with a bit of market insight, which is kind of general trends that we're hearing. And so one of the ones that's come up a fair bit in the news recently is around ESG linked bonuses in general. Uh, ESG bonuses really came up on the world stage about five, six years ago. I think the first really big company to do this at a big scale was Shell. Uh, and I actually forget if it was 2017 or 2018, but when it happened, it was really innovative that the Shell management team was going to link its performance incentives and bonuses to actual ESG attainment. And that was a really big shift and a big move. Since then, a lot of other companies have followed suit. Uh, but at the same time, there was some interesting analysis done in the Financial Times recently around how there's some elements of what looks a bit like gaming of the system going on. And that can tend to be because the ESG bonuses or incentives are based around slightly fluffy KPIs or metrics. A lot of the time, this can be around qualitative aspects like, uh, did you run an, a successful set of workshops with suppliers? Uh, did you create an emissions reduction roadmap for the business? And there can be a weightage of that versus, for example, genuine reduction generating activities. So uh, there are some elements where this can be a little fuzzy. Uh, usually it's where there's qualitative achievement absent quantitative attainment. Um, I think that ESG bonuses as a whole need to evolve a fair bit, and we can all appreciate and understand that. In general, that as sustainability professionals, we have a fiduciary duty uh, to make sure that ESG bonuses are, are rewarding the types of activities that we want to actually incentivize. And so a few of the things that I'd look for uh, when setting these in a business are a weightage towards uh, actual gains versus historic performance of the business rather than just versus benchmark, because frankly, a lot of the benchmarks are based on flawed data right now, whereas you can you know what went into your numbers last year. And so gains versus that are a little, a little more uh, precise in some ways. Uh, the second thing I'd look for is a causal link between uh, the metric attainment and something that the management team individual did. So uh, for example, did you manage to get X percentage of suppliers to engage with you and to share their data and targets? Let's take that as a, you know, a largely qualitative metric still, but that could be linked to something that you went out and did proactively versus, for example, there was a fall in demand for your product. And as a result, the absolute emissions for your business went down. You didn't really do anything proactive and actually you probably wanted the opposite outcome. Uh, and then finally, you want this to be a, a sort of a genuine shift. Uh, and so you probably want to start um, weighting it towards the later years when you're going to have achievements from the program rather than towards the early gains, which are going to be 
ultra qualitative. So a lot of the strategy and setting will be early gains, but the actual achievement, the actual reductions might come four or five years later. And those are the more significant achievements, but you got them by virtue of the stuff that you did early on. It seems premature to take the rewards as a management team early on than when gains are demonstrated. And that's the way that most businesses will, will think about it. If you have a CEO, uh, the CEO, for example, will have a reward for unlocking a particular achievement that may take five years in the making, might be a share price, might be a revenue target. You want to try and mirror some of that thinking because it should be a long-term incentive that you're trying to create. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how these evolve, especially as like your data accuracy improves and then perhaps your like the what you had your target for then actually is changed by the numbers that you're seeing because they might be way more accelerated than you thought they were so it all then it has like conflicting interests about what you want what you don't want so it's um important to get get the right numbers down and get the right targets in place yeah for sure because again this is an evolving system and a lot of the data is going to get better and so it makes sense to almost uh have the jury out until some of the data is good enough for us to actually make payouts because there's there's also some big risks in in having too too much money actually paid out to management teams without having the right causality without having the right uh, gains versus historic performance and there's a, an external risk and there's an internal risk the internal risk is that people stop taking the ESG bonus seriously because they figure look everyone's getting an ESG bonus these days the business isn't any more sustainable than it was yesterday. And that then means that you're no longer really incentivizing a behavior change. And the actual purpose of these incentives should be to uh, shift behavior almost counter to other incentives. You maybe have an incentive to pure play, grow the revenue. And this is a, in some ways, a limiting factor, maybe even or a counter factor uh, or new work like one. And so it, it, if you're hitting everything by just growing the business revenue, it sort of goes against the grain of what you're trying to achieve in terms of behavior change. And then the external risk, and actually we're seeing some of this play out now in the political debate in the US, is if investors see a lot of money being paid out without any intrinsic improvement in the business performance, then it's clear that this is not adding value. And I think it undermines the whole sustainability and ESG movement. Because what all of us in the field in sustainability are trying to say is sustainability is linked to long-term value creation for the business and its community and therefore shareholders as well. And that only holds water if you can point to either long-term revenue growth, long-term cost consolidation and reduction, long-term viability of the business. And that's only true if you can demonstrate some causal link in what you did and, and again, improvement, some sort of actual iterative change versus historic performance, these sorts of things. If actually you, you're, you've gotten a bonus because someone in a third party data set changed an emissions factor and that factor is now 50% lower and your emissions went down, that's very quickly going to become clear to investors that that's completely detached from any business performance. Yeah. And do you see these... Um bonuses being hosted from the sustainability budget or is it a company-wide budget? Where, where does the money come from? That's a really good question. And I don't think there's been a lot of thinking done in most companies that I'm aware of on this. Um, but I would almost kind of think of two aspects to it. One is 
let's say the the C-suite incentive plan, which usually is led by the board of directors and kind of there's there, there's a holistic incentive plan for the CEO and usually a few of the other C-suite members like the, the COO, the CFO, et cetera, especially in a larger business. And I would kind of treat that separately. And that's like a holistic package for where they're trying to take the business. Um, I think where, and I wouldn't suggest that that necessarily come out of a sustainability budget per se, because I see a sustainability budget as one that the sustainability function has ownership over. And in some ways, it seems a bit maybe maybe counterintuitive that that function should report in to people who are being incentivized that budget. So that's, that's yeah. just maybe something I'm, I would struggle with a bit. Um, but then the other aspect, which some companies are now moving towards, is incentivizing middle management and managers to achieve mm -hmm. change. And I think that there could be an interesting case for saying that that sort of incentive plan should come out of a sustainability budget. But I think what's more likely to be true in the medium and long term is that that should just come out of the function, the budget for the function into which those people report. Because sustainability long term to be embedded should be within the grain of how that how those functions are managed rather than by a separate team. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, I think we're going to move on to some questions that we got in previously. And one is from Irina, who said, we set an ambitious carbon target, but had intended to meet a significant share of it through offsets. It now looks like that's no longer popular. Do we need to change our course of action? I think, yeah, what are the, what are the steps that she should take? Yeah, this is a fun one. This is actually the second time in a few hours that I'm being asked about offsets, uh, which I have very mixed feelings on. So if I kind of maybe just almost play back the question a bit, uh, the question is around how, given increasing pressure and noise around offsets, if offsets have been part of your strategy as a team, how should you now adapt? Do you change course or do you keep going with what you plan? Um, maybe just to recalibrate that and summarize some of the noise, basically. Uh, the first is around increased scrutiny of offsets. And a lot of that is driven by the media. Some of that is driven by regulation and some of it is driven by quasi-regulation. And I would call science-based targets, for example, a sort of quasi-regulatory instrument. Um, and so that increased scrutiny has sort of pushed most buyers towards higher quality offsets, which means offsets that are less likely to have been kind of resold many times over, uh, they're less likely to have had their incrementality game, which means that the offsets don't actually contribute to an incremental improvement. And, uh, and, and, and there's some been some playing around with the numbers there. There's less likely to be that. And there's also less likely to maybe be a significant risk hanging over the offsets that it's a forest that's going to be burned down next year, for instance. Um, and so all of that has kind of created a shift towards quality which I think is actually fundamentally a really good thing for the market. It's a good thing that a lot of the poor quality uh, offsets, but also poor quality actors and players get shifted out. Uh, but that means that as a buyer, you're either looking at like high quality nature-based solutions, for example, uh, or you're looking at technical offsets like direct air capture. And with the high quality NBS-based stuff, uh, there's then, you know, a finite market for the high quality providers or suppliers. 
And with the, with the technical offsets or the direct air capture, you miss out on a lot of the cool benefits that many companies that have been buying offsets for a while have been used to, which is, you know, lots of, for example, good social impact, lots of iconic imagery, a great narrative. Most direct, direct air capture or similar sorts of offsets are going to be, feel a bit like a commodity, even mm -hmm. though they're high priced, but they're the same. They're fungible. It's, it's not like there's a, you know, a village somewhere that has, where the lives have been changed by virtue of the investment you've made in the local, local, local nature, for instance. Um, and so that's kind of already forcing a lot of companies to reconsider what part offsets play in their program not just because of the scrutiny, but also because of the price. And so if you're looking at offsets that used to be five euros per ton or $5 per ton, and, and they're now anywhere from 15 to 25 for a good, you know, let's say nature-based offset versus, uh, versus 150, 200 or more for a technical offset. Then when you compare that to anything in your supply chain, in value chain decarbonization, operational decarbonization, uh, you know, you, you, you might find opportunities at an average of, of still seven, eight, 10, $12 per ton, because you have a bunch of stuff that is actually cost neutral or profitable. You have some stuff that is low cost. And for the other stuff, you can actually wait and see the risks are arguably lower and on a risk adjusted basis basis, you know, many of your offset programs would have gone through the roof. So actually a lot of companies are reassessing whether to go with an offset based strategy, not just because they have a cap on how much they want to put under their science-based target, but also just because it's no longer cost effective like it used to be. Yeah. Uh, so that's, I think something, something that many are considering. I would expect that most forward leading companies will still have some aspect of mm -hmm. offset uh, assumption in their plan, you know, maybe. 10 to 15% of their emissions reduction uh, plan or so, but it's more likely to be something that they would use as a buffer or, or for, for the last mile almost in their, in their strategy. And there's been a lot of noise, I think we can say in the media around companies in lots of different industries and verticals who have um, denounced their carbon neutral targets. So I think the latest was Sodexo, but there was also Gucci and um, Leon, I think they didn't they um, take away their carbon neutral claims around each burger is carbon neutral. And I think the fact that there's a lot of momentum behind it shows that it's sticking and it's worth kind of thinking about and putting into thinking about it for your strategy. Yeah, for sure. And a lot of the labels have also now started to be retracted. Mm. Uh, I, I, I saw anecdotally some news from one of the leading consultancies in this space, and I don't want to quote it because I haven't verified it yet. Uh, but I, you know, they're sort of pulling their carbon neutral claim that they, they've been assigning to some of their clients. And I think that's, that's, you know, that makes sense yeah. that we need to move towards higher credibility in this space. And that's a good thing for everyone. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually going to backtrack us to what we were, um, talking about previously because Fatima sent in a question, um, which was, would you recommend a mix of qualitative and quantitative? KPIs because some aspects will remain softer in their nature. It has to be a reasonable glide path to encourage mainstream adoption. Yeah, this is a great question. And so Fatima's question around a mix of qualitative and quantitative KPIs, I would wholly agree that that's a good approach. I think that a lot of qualitative aspects can be converted to quantitative data. And so, you know, again, a good example is 
what share of your suppliers have you actively engaged with? And what share of your suppliers have committed to a to match your target, for example, right? This is, you know, you can actually quantify this and you can quantify your residual exposure or the remaining exposure that you have as a business versus what your suppliers have kind of covered to to match your commitments. So I think there's a lot of stuff that you can do there in blending some of the quantitative with the qualitative. Uh, what I would be a little careful around is stuff like, you know, an emissions reduction oriented target right now. And the reason is that I've just seen too many companies that have done a 2% reduction in 2021, followed by a 2% gain in 2022, followed by 2%, because the numbers are moving around due to either emissions factors changing or change, changes in underlying data infrastructure. And so I would hold off a little on some of those and focus a little more on quantifiable work that can be done qualitatively and save some of the bigger incentives for harder quantitative achievements that happen later on in the journey. Makes sense. Just want to caveat there. I'm very impressed with your tongue twister around the quantitative and qualitative. Yeah, it it took, took, me, took me a moment to sort of formulate that in my head. Um, Great. Okay. So we got another question in from Will, which says, what do you think of the US government's move into indirect, into direct procurement of carbon credits? Yeah, it's obviously super interesting. Obviously, one of the biggest moves from a regulator in this space in, in the last many months and probably even years, right? Like there've been a few big moves, clearly Inflation Reduction Act, uh, corporate sustainability reporting directive, corporate bo uh, you know, carbon border adjustment mechanism, and I think this is going to be in that in that same camp, uh, which is we're basically saying that the world's largest and most enduring venture capital investor, the U.S. government, is moving in to back uh, the purchase of. Uh, carbon offsets and particularly technical offsets mm -hmm. like direct air, air capture and so on. And I, I think that's just going to have really seismic implications for the market. So uh, I, I, I have mixed feelings, but, but I think that overall, it's undoubtedly a step in the right direction because we know that technical removals are necessary for a one and a half degree scenario. And we know that they need a substantial amount of capital to bring costs down and improve scalability. And I think that the U.S. government moving into this space will help with both of those by bringing in a vast, not just a vast influx of money, but a reliable influx, a long-term partner, basically, for that. Um, but then also, I think that that volume of capital flowing in will also help to improve standards and will help to boost credibility of the space overall. And, you know, we, we need that. Uh, at the same time, there's a risk that this robs uh, a lot of the mainstream decarbonization agenda of its momentum, where for the companies that have been now focusing on supply chain decarbonization, operational changes, uh, there's, there's another option that is going to become cheaper and easier to access potentially. And while that can be a good thing, it can also deter a lot of the changes that businesses will need to do also to achieve a one and a half degree scenario. And moreover, a lot of the focus on emissions reduction has delivered substantial co-benefits. So for example, a lot of the companies now thinking about water 
are doing that because they've been focused on emissions. And a lot of the companies that are now looking at nature have been pushed in this direction because they're also thinking about emissions. And so I'm a bit worried as well that we lose some of the momentum around that. I think that long-term, the momentum will carry on, but what's almost worse is if you have a flag for five or six or seven or eight years, and that sort of dip in momentum can then be hard to, to uh, make up for lost time. Yeah. And where do you see, I think there's been a lot of talk around insets versus offsets, and what do you think are the benefits of each? And where would you kind of, uh, if you were investing, where would you put your value in? So if I think of the benefits of insets versus offsets, uh, personally, I have a bias, which is I, you know, before starting altruistic, I started a farming business that's a supplier in to like the fragrance and uh, cosmetics industries. And so I kind of, you know, I, I'm coming a little from that perspective where I'm also, you know, part of my mind will always think a little as a supplier to these companies. Um, but the thing about, Offsets have a couple of challenges. One is that they're quite uh, remote from your business generally. And so most of the place where the impact is from an offset perspective is different to where you're having an impact in your business. So if you're, let's say, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're buying, uh, you know, direct air capture offsets and there's, there, you know, this is, this is happening in Iceland or, or somewhere in a remote location. It's very distant from your business, which means that the, the, the sort of, Thinking for your company and your team and your talent and your consumers is not joined up with what you're investing in as a business. So that's kind of one challenge, I think, which is like a narrative challenge. There's another challenge, which is the whole certification thing, which is because it's a third-party product that you're buying, you need to create a separate stream for audit or assurance that has no dovetailing with what you're doing normally. And so you need to make sure that there's good certification and audit and verification of those offsets, which doesn't fully exist today versus insets where insets, or let's call, call it in value chain decarbonization or supply chain reduction, you know, whatever you want to call it has a few, few big benefits. I think one is that it's, uh, it's more proximate. So it's investing in people that you already have a relationship with companies that you already have a relationship with, which means. Uh, that there is a better narrative for you to take to your consumers. There's a better narrative internally for your business. And all of this has real implications on your ability to either pass on price or capture upside with your consumers, or at least galvanize the team behind change. So that's one big plus. And the second is that it can dovetail with existing carbon emissions accounting and carbon audit, because you're in any case going to be asking your suppliers for emissions-related data and emissions-related targets. And so if there's a reduction happening in their business, it'll just show up on the books. And so it can dovetail on the existing process and system that you're setting up. So I think there are a couple of big benefits. So I'm, I personally have a bias in favor of the insetting approach because also if you think about, you know, again, a 1.5 degree scenario, I think most of that change comes from companies decarbonizing their operations and supply chain and a minority, a necessary and important but still minority part comes from offsets. So I think we have to put a sizable amount of our thinking into how to enable that infrastructure. Yeah. And I think actually a question which came in earlier from Amber uh, lends itself quite well to this, which is how should I amend my existing supplier agreements to promote the exchange of emissions data? Yeah, this is a really good one. Um, so 
I would encourage every business that is serious about sustainability and has set a sustainability target or is setting a target to think about their target as a liability. And that sounds odd because you know, I'm, 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 I'm a, you know, a sustainability practitioner and I'm promoting the fact that businesses should take this seriously. But financially, it is a liability. It is a commitment that you've made and it's going to cost money and time and effort and energy to achieve this commitment. So it is a promise and it is therefore a liability. And the next thing I would think about is how do you limit risk within that liability? The risk of non-performance, the risk that you have to pay out more than you would otherwise pay out. How do you risk that it runs late, uh, manage the risk that it runs late? And so I would look to pass on that liability to suppliers mm -hmm. because for most businesses, you know, 90% plus minus of their carbon emissions are going to come from the supply chain. And so uh, the ability to get the supply chain to match your scope three targets, for example, is not only necessary, but I don't see how you're going to make, make anything work if they don't move. And so what most companies need to start thinking about is how to, how to pass that liability on in a way that is not just, is not soft. It's actually contractual in some ways. It's actually binding. And we're on that journey. But there are two types of covenants that I would look at inserting into supplier agreements. One is around data sharing and target sharing. And we're seeing that direction of travel already taking place. So many large retailers are already requiring suppliers to share targets and share, share emissions data. And that's either in the supplier protocols or supplier rules of engagement, but it's also in many cases moving into actual covenants, actual contracts. Uh, incidentally, investors are also doing this. Investors in their term sheets are also uh, putting in requirements to share emissions data to, you know, potentially in some cases offset emissions, at least in part, and to share. So I think one part is just around data sharing and target sharing. And that'll really help increase adoption rate of, of better carbon measurement methods and approaches within supply chains. The second, and this I think is a little more interesting and new and, and nuanced, is limiting the supplier's ability to sell their reductions to a third party. And the reason I talk about this is because if you as a business have committed to an emissions reduction on the expectation that your suppliers are going to reduce their emissions, if your supplier actually sells that reduction potential to a third party in some shape or form as an offset, for example, uh, you're stuck holding the emissions for that supplier. And so, you know, this could happen for, you know, this, this could happen in many instances. It could be energy-based, right? It could be renewable energy certificates. It could be a, a, a removal, land-based removal. And if you don't restrict that, that ha from happening, or at least a contract to have the first right of refusal on buying those, uh, buying those reductions, then you're going to have to kind of pull yourself out of the bog later on, right? No, no pun intended. Mm. It's, it's going to be a, a tricky, tricky issue if you've been banking on that. So those are the two sets of governance I would think about. One is, uh, how to contract in that the supplier shares emissions data and targets with you. And the second is how to limit uh, the supplier's right to sell any reductions to a third party without informing you or at least offering them to you first. 
Yeah, I think that's a tough pill to swallow if you suddenly realise that those emissions are actually gone elsewhere. Are there any, beyond contracting, are there any other examples where you, that you've seen have worked in terms of limiting that, sh- that sharing of emissions elsewhere? I think that it kind of depends on the nature of the supplier and the nature of the relationship you have with the supplier. Mm-hmm. And I know that a number of companies that supply into the FMCG value chain, for example, are seeing this as a business opportunity. They're seeing reductions and offsets as potentially a new revenue stream that they can generate. Uh, and I, I know that this is taking off in the agriculture space as well. And so we can you know, talk about softer measures that you could take, like you know, engagement-oriented measures, mission alignment, and, and how to actually like bring bring the supplier on board with your thinking and where you want to head to as a business. But ultimately, we all need to get on top of the fact that there is going to be money at stake here one way or the other, whether it's money that you're going to have to spend as a business to decarbonize or money that's available to your supplier as a new revenue stream. And the best thing is to somehow join those up. You know, the best logic is for companies to work out a carbon price for their business, which is the threshold uh, below which all initiatives are profitable on the modeling. So let's say $50 per ton is your carbon price. And you you basically com- you committed to yourself that what is below that is basically where I'm in the money. I can get an initial $45. And so, you know, why don't you make that that money available to your supply chain as well to bid for reductions? Because you'd rather that that happens within your ecosystem than that it exits and yeah. you're left holding the emissions. We've just got another question in whilst you're speaking there um, from Fatima, who said, for companies that are starting out on this journey, especially with the suppliers that may be very not be that may not be very well informed, prepared, or convinced on this agenda, do you recommend still beginning with within the value chain with decarbonisation and risking a slow start or offsets or both? I think that. You know, if I kind of think about where to start for companies that are early on and whether to look at offsets or in-value chain decarbonization, uh, personally, I have a bias, again, towards in-value chain decarbonization because I think that for most businesses now, you get most of the same sorts of benefits Mm -hmm. as what you were getting from offsets previously. And so if I look, if I flash back in four years, a good offset project was one where you get, you know, iconic imagery, a great narrative. It's great for marketing. It's great for talent. It's a traditional corporate uh, social responsibility, you know, initiative that you lead and everyone feels happy about it. Right? The business has sponsored a, a sort of the, the local forest and helped hire a warden, a school, a small clinic. And there's been a hundred jobs created. And by the way, it was good for the planet and reduced emissions. This was like a traditional sort of, you know, RED plus, REDD plus style offset project. And, um, and I think that now a lot of that can still be the case that similar, those similar impacts can be the case if you start engaging your value chain. And so what I would look at is I would lean into the supply chain and I would try and understand what types of suppliers do I have? And where is there an opportunity for me to lean in with some of those suppliers and set up a project that will deliver an emissions reduction, but also a great narrative. 
and a great story and it'll be great for marketing and it'll be great for talent. And, you know, coming, for example, from, from Pakistan, which is where I grew up, there's so much good that you can do there yeah. almost with any second company that it's almost weird that you would look elsewhere for an offset project, yeah. uh, you know, because it's so proximate and so close by. And most global companies will have these within their supply chain. So I would always prioritize those, especially given that I think you'll find it is at cost parity versus what you could be spending on a decent quality offset today. Yeah, I think that's a good rule of thumb to go by. Um, I've realized that we are at time. So I think thank you so much for everyone who's asked questions. I know we haven't got around to all of them today, um, but we run them every every first week of the month. So we'll hopefully be able to field some of them next time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Izzy. Thank you, Sam. And have a great day.